Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and it's great to be back to host episode 17, our 18th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. Jason, what have you been up to? Hi, Marilyn. It is so nice to see you, and um, it's great to be back recording the podcast after, gosh, I think it's been six months since we released the last episode, but you know, life and work happens. And as, um, as we talked about on the last podcast, I made the decision to take a job as the founding chair of the Department of Computational Biomedicine at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And I moved uh, from Philadelphia to Los Angeles in October and have spent the last few months uh, getting settled um, and getting oriented to my new institution and getting the new department off the ground. And it's it's been a busy time, but I can say that it's gone extremely well. And uh, everything both personally and professionally has gone very smoothly. So I'm, I'm very happy with the transition. And in terms of the new department, um, it has a very broad scope. Um, and uh, this, is a, this is a new department, so there's a lot of building uh, that has to happen. And the first thing I had to do is build an administrative team, which I've done. I brought several people with me, uh, a departmental manager, a departmental director. And I hired a few weeks ago an executive assistant who's worked at Cedar sinai for 15 years and has a tremendous amount of experience. So really excited uh, that I've got my administrative team in place and have hit the ground running. And and that's really important because it can take, you know, it could take six months sometimes to find good administrators. So, um, so that's been extremely helpful to getting off to a, a good start. And uh, thank you so much to my admin team for um, uh, joining me in this departmental effort. Um, I've also been busy getting faculty recruitment off the ground. I've already recruited a couple faculty, junior faculty. I've got a couple offers out. And I have a job ad that should go out this week or next week um, to hire uh, bioinformaticians focused on single cell genomics uh, and related work. And um, so that should go out and we'll probably mention that again on the next podcast, but look for that. If you're interested, look for that online or let me know, contact me. Uh, so a lot of faculty recruitment and my faculty recruitment is really at least, uh, initially focused in three different areas. The, the bioinformatics for single cell genomics is the, is the first piece, uh, translational bioinformatics. So I'm hoping to recruit a couple people focused on biobanks and, and integration of genomics with electronic health records and risk prediction and those kinds of things. 
Um, and then if, uh, I want to hire more methodologists in the AI and machine learning space. So uh, busy, busy faculty recruitment over the next few years. Um, we also have a mandate to start some education programs here. I hope to, in, over the next few years, launch a new PhD program in computational biomedicine. Um, and how that takes shape will largely depend on the kind of faculty we recruit and the kind of courses and curriculum we can develop. Um, so we'll see how that goes and probably one or more master's programs. But I think the PhD program and the, ma and a, and the master's program will probably take on some uh, a data science uh, feel to it. Um, building a lot of infrastructure, uh, Cedars is investing heavily in single cell biology and other, other areas. And, and so I'm working with our, um, our health IT team to uh, upgrade the high-performance computing and data storage and all those kinds of things to, to expand the computational capability and help support all the, the faculty that we're going to recruit. So a lot of efforts going into that right now. Um, also uh, helping to uh, coordinate and oversee our bioinformatics core services and offer training opportunities to the Cedars-Sinai community, workshops and training sessions and tutorials. So we're getting that off the ground too. So it's, um, it's a busy time, but this is what I enjoy doing and I've done it before. And, um, and if you're interested in an opportunity at Cedars-Sinai, please feel free to reach out to me. Marilyn, what have you been up to? Well, it's great to be back doing this again with you as well. And congratulations again on the new position. And I'm so glad to hear that it's going well. So my news is that as of uh, the end of January, I took over as the new director of the Institute for Biomedical Informatics at Penn. So that is the position that Jason left last fall. Uh, they did a search and I interviewed and I was just appointed and it was just announced this week. So that's been my big exciting news for 2022. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm I'm honored and thrilled and you left big shoes to fill. So I have a lot to do, but I'm, I'm just so excited and, and couldn't be happier. And so I hit the ground running. So I, the announcement went out on Monday morning and on Tuesday morning before nine o'clock, I hosted a town hall to invite the uh, members of the IBI community together to hear about my vision and kind of plans getting started over the next several months. And then what our longer term plans are. That's going to be a lot of meetings coming up for me. You know, I'm, I'm starting, I already started this week having a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings and I'm going to have some small group meetings, trying to come up with a, a new strategic plan for IBI. You know, when, when you came to Penn, gosh, what, eight years ago, you know, Jason, for those who aren't familiar, Jason created IBI from nothing. They, they didn't have an institute. So he came in as the founding director. And so now I'm taking over kind of in the eighth year and trying to figure out, you know, what is IBI 2.0 look like and where are we headed in kind of the next 10 years? And so I'm going to be doing a big strategic planning effort uh, within the School of Medicine and the University of Pennsylvania Health System, looping in the uh, School of Engineering and the Children's Hospital and the vet school and the business school, Wharton and the nursing school and, you know, informatics really touches a lot of the University of Pennsylvania at large and trying to figure out, you know, where does IBI fit in, in the context of all of those different areas? And, and the way that I kind of put it forward in my vision 
you know, in my mind, and I think this was the vision that certainly the search committee and the leadership really liked is that IBI is the hub of informatics at Penn. And part of our role is to build out the spokes. So we need informatics kind of embedded in all of these other schools and disciplines. And that, you know, IBI really brings all of these people together. And so I'll be spending a lot of time over the next year doing the strategic planning, you know, in the very early coming weeks. I, I also have a lot of hiring to do. So hearing you say that I'm, I'm sitting here like, yep, same thing, because uh, I need to hire an administrative team and we're going to do some faculty recruitment and we have some staff recruitment to do. So just like Cedars, if you, so if you're not interested in the West Coast and you're interested in the East Coast, keep an eye out for uh, IBI at Penn. It's going to be doing some recruiting as well. Um, so that's, you know, my big, big plans, big news and, and taking up a lot of my brain space and has been for the last couple of months. Cause you know, I've, I've been in conversations about this for several months and just, uh, but now it's official and, and I can finally get started. Um, in addition to that, I am teaching a course this semester. It's a survey course in biomedical informatics. We've had two sessions so far. It's a great group of students. They're really um, excited about the papers. They discuss a lot. They talk a lot. That makes the class just so much more fun. You know, you never know with a survey course when students are presenting papers and a big part of the time is intended to be discussion. And so you kind of finish the presentations and then wait and hope that students talk. And this group talked a lot, which was just great. So the classes have been really great so far. And I'm excited to be back in the classroom. It's been a while. You know, we're at Penn, we're back to in-person teaching this semester. So everybody in the room and it, you know, it was a little bit, I don't know, intimidating at first, just because I haven't been in a classroom very much in two years, but within 10 minutes, I was like, oh, I really prefer it in a classroom like with everybody sitting around the table. It, it was really great. So I'm excited about that. And I am in the last kind of quarter of the ELAM program. So that's Executive Leadership for Academic Medicine. It's a women's leadership program, uh, national program that I'm, I've been a part of. I mentioned it on an earlier podcast, but we just had the winter session in January. And um, now we're kind of finishing up our projects and our work. And uh, the next session is in April. And then we graduate in the summer. And the program has been tremendous. It's, it's a lot of work, but I've learned so much. And I feel like it's really positioned me kind of exactly where I need to be in terms of my leadership skills for taking on this new role in IBI. Um, and then the last thing, you know, I have this other podcast on um, kind of wellness and work-life harmony. And uh, one of the faculty in the Department of Radiology has been listening and really liked it. And that department just started a wellness seminar series. And so they asked me to come and speak. And so I gave a wellness seminar last week for the first time and, um, you know, an hour long seminar session. And, uh, it, it was really fun. Like putting it together was fun, but also the feedback that I got was great. So I feel like it like ignited a little fire. So now I'm like, Oh, I wonder what other departments might want to hear this wellness seminar. So I'm going to try to take it to my own and, and maybe go on a little road show, you know, between IBI and then also this wellness seminar, which is something I think so many people need. Carolyn, I just want to say how excited I am that you've taken over IBI. You're the absolute perfect person to lead Penn Informatics into the future. And, and I was, you know, when you said you had big shoes to fill, I was going to say, well, you have big feet, but I don't think that would have, would have come out right. So, um, <laughs> um, 
But I also want to welcome you to the National Biomedical Informatics Leadership Group. Um, and you know, for those of you that don't know, the department chairs and, and center and institute directors of biomedical informatics around the country are a pretty close-knit community. And we all get along really well. We talk often. Uh, the American Medical Informatics Association even has a committee where we get together and talk about things. And, and there's a lot of subgroups that meet informally to talk up through issues and, and, and collaborate and strategize you know, informatics uh, either on a local or uh, national scale. So I just wanna be the first to welcome you to that community, Marilyn, and I know you're gonna have a big impact nationally in the biomedical informatics space. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. You can send feedback to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our handle is at BMIRpodcast and on Facebook. Be sure to, to leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is strategies and best practices for holding informatics conferences in person. Marilyn just co-organized an in-person meeting and will share with her experience. Marilyn? Thanks, Jason. Yeah, it was very exciting to go to a conference in person again. You know, the pandemic has really halted a lot of what we did kind of pre-pandemic in terms of, you know, networking and going to conferences. It had been so long since I'd traveled and gone on an airplane. Actually, I flew on January the 2nd of 2022, and the last time I had gone on a plane was March 6th of 2020. I tried to do TSA pre-check. It was expired, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, no, it expires in May of 2021, and in my head, it was 2021, and it was January, and you know, I had missed two whole years, so um, it was really exciting. So we, we had the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, or PSB. It was held on the Big Island of Hawaii, January 3rd through the 7th of 2022. We had about 200 participants in attendance, which was great. That is our pretty, pretty typical number of people at the conference. We weren't sure, especially with the Omicron variant surging in December and into early January. You know, was that going to stop us from having the conference? Was it going to lead to a lot of cancellations? It turned out that it didn't. We ended up right about our typical number of participants, which was was a pleasant surprise. Um, overall, the conference was great. The science was fantastic, which it always is. It's always my favorite conference of the year. But it also logistically went very well. And I I made a list of the things that we did. And and I don't know if I would say these are specifically best practices yet. These are at least you know, the things that we did as an organizing team that, um, that worked. And I, I think I would do all of them again, if we were having another conference right away. But um, as with everything related to COVID, um, you just never know how things are going to change. And so I would take this list and then, you know, adapt as needed if the pandemic changes again. So I will say organizing a meeting 
you know, during COVID times or I guess any pandemic is really different. The administrative staff had so much extra communication to do with both the participants about the COVID guidelines at the location, as well as with the hotel. And I have to give all the credit to Tiffany Murray and Terry Klein at Stanford did the lion's share of the work. They took care of so many things, probably many things that I don't even know that they took care of. But I did see many emails that went out about looking through the guidelines in Hawaii. So Hawaii has a, a COVID safe program that you need to register online before you come to the island. You need to upload your vaccine card or a negative COVID test within a certain number of hours. You have to have the a QR code that they give you in order to, you know, come into the island. So when you get off the plane, you actually, it almost is like a customs and border control line where they check your vaccine card, they check your QR code, or they check your negative COVID test. It, there's a whole process. And so as conference organizers, you know, they spent a lot of time communicating that with participants because they didn't want people to fail to look at, you know, hawaii.gov and then get there and not realize that they needed to have all this stuff done ahead of time. And so there was a lot of communication work that had to be done. And then with the hotel, you know, the hotel has all of the COVID guidelines that they had to follow both from their corporate headquarters. So this was a Fairmont hotel. So I'm sure, you know, Fairmont has a set of guidelines, but then so does the big island of Hawaii. And a lot of things had to be done differently. So often at a conference, you would have buffets of food. Well, during a pandemic, you can't really have people just walking up to open, you know, displays of food, at least not at this venue. So instead of buffets of food, everything had to be boxed meals. And with dietary restrictions, that meant we really needed to capture that in advance because we needed to know how many people need vegetarian food. It's not like they could walk through the line and just pick more vegetables and avoid the meat. They needed to pick up a box of food that they could actually eat. And knowing things about, you know, dairy allergies and gluten allergies. So the meal process was just much more complicated than it usually is. Seating for meals was also kind of, you had to be strategic because you need people to sit a certain distance apart. And so when the hotel put the tables out, they needed to position the chairs so that they were the right number of seat, you know, space apart and not have too many chairs at any table. And people weren't supposed to move the chairs around to sit closer to one another. So all of that related to meals was complicated. And then things that I hadn't even thought we had to think about until um, Terry Klein was telling me, things like AV. So often at a conference, there's a lapel mic that a speaker would use to give the talk. And then there are microphones set up in the room that you go up to ask questions. Well, with COVID, I mean, you can't share microphones. Even with a mask on, I guess you like probably from a CDC guidelines perspective, you could, but we just weren't sure that it was the right thing to do. And so instead we had, you know, you had to keep your mask on if you were walking up to the mic, you know, to ask questions and you couldn't touch it. There was a big sign, like do not touch the microphone. And so that the hopes were people would like stand far enough away. And as long as they didn't touch it, you know, if there was any virus that got onto the microphone, it should not come back onto the person. And then we didn't do the lapel mics. We did the, you know, the, podium mic only. They cleaned it in between presenters. And we said, please don't touch the microphone because, you know, if you speak into it and then someone else speaks into it and you touch it, but it was a whole level of thought that, you know, 
we've never had any thoughts about the microphones. You just order microphones from the hotel. But with a transmissible virus that, you know, comes out of your mouth and nose where you're talking, uh, it, it's something of concern. Um, similarly, the poster session, thinking through, so we ended up doing the poster session outside, which is something you can do in Hawaii because the weather, you know, in January allows for that, but we couldn't leave the posters sitting outside all week. And so what we ended up doing is had everyone set up their posters inside the room and they were there all week so that people could go view when they chose to. But then when the actual live session happened, the hotel staff helped to move all of the boards outside into the open areas for the poster session and then move them all back into the room. So that was just a lot of extra work, but it allowed us to have people interact at their posters. And, and it was great to do a live poster session talking with people. Um, masks had to stay on at the poster session at all times, in the room at all times. Um, we had to have a seating chart to do contact tracing. So you know, normally at a conference, some of us are habitual and will always just gravitate towards the same seat anyway, because we just are creatures of habit. But a lot of people move around all week so they could talk to other people. This time we couldn't. You picked your seat. You put your name on your seat. We had post-it notes that you could put your name on it. And that was your seat. And the reason for that was so that we could do contact tracing. If someone did test positive, we wanted to be able to know who was sitting, you know, within a radius of that person so that we could let those individuals know that someone tested positive that was sitting near them. We distributed rapid antigen tests at registration. Um, again, Terry Klein moved heaven and earth. And at a time during Omicron, when you couldn't get a test anywhere, somehow that woman got over 200 tests and had them at the registration desk. They were shipped from God knows where to Hawaii. And there they were. I don't know how she did it because I couldn't find any. I mean, I just wanted to take some in my suitcase and couldn't find them. We distributed them at registration ask people to take one the first morning of the conference and report their results on a web form. And then also three, I think three days later. So the day before that we were having the banquet that evening. Um, so we did that. They, we created a web form so people could enter their results. We ended up only having one person test positive during the conference, which was phenomenal. I mean, at a time when Omicron was like every other person had COVID, we were really happy that it was only one. They were asymptomatic and you know, on the rapid antigen test tested positive. And so we pivoted very quickly. That was the day of the banquet. And so instead of having closer seating at the tables, we dispersed, we got more tables and spread people out even more. I think it was supposed to be six or eight people at a table. We made it four people at a table. And we also offered a boxed dinner to take the banquet food away since we knew there was one positive in the group. Um, we, what else? We removed the drink station. Normally there's water and coffee in the room all day. We took it out because we didn't want people drinking all day just to take their mask off. So we had a lot of water and coffee in the morning. The conference swag was a hot, cold mug with a lid that they could either fill it up with coffee or fill it up with water. And it had a lid on it so that, you know, they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be just out in the open. And uh, they were instructed, you know, take the mask off, take your sip, put your mask back on. Don't keep sipping and, you know, just leave your mask off. And, um, we also, you know, normally we don't stream that conference at all. It, the internet on the Island back to the mainland is just, it's so, um, hit or miss, but we were worried about people, you know, testing positive and having flown the whole way there and spent all this money and then not be able to participate. And so we did set up a zoom so that people who were at the hotel 
you know, who either weren't feeling well, because we said, if you wake up and even if you think it's allergies, if you're sneezing, don't come watch it from your room. Here's a zoom link. We didn't broadcast it because we didn't want it, you know, being connected to from the mainland, but we really wanted the people who, you know, took the risk and flew to Hawaii to make sure that they could participate in the conference. And not many people used it, um, but we had it there just in case. So all in all, I think it went really well, but it was just a lot of details to think through that, you know, as a conference organizer, we've never had to think through before. So I don't know, Jason, any, any thoughts, any questions? I know we missed you at PSB this year. You're a regular and with the move, you didn't get to come. Yeah, I thought it would be better to stay here and focus on the new job, but um, I am happy to be in Los Angeles, you know, much closer to Hawaii. It's only a five hour flight from here. So that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I, um, uh, I, I'm just blown away, but by what you guys did to pull this conference off. I mean, that's an incredible list of things that you just went through to make it safe. And sounds like it was successful and everybody had an enjoyable conference given, you know, given all the, the hardships and the extra precautions. Um, uh, I do know some people that got sick on the way home. Um, and uh, so that was an issue for some people that I think were fine at the conference, but then toward the end of the conference or on their, on their way home, got sick or got sick when they got home. Um, so, uh, I, I don't know. I, I just, I guess my question for you, Marilyn is, you know, is it, was it worth it? It sounds like it was, but is, was it worth it to go through all this pain and suffering to put this conference on? And is it worth it to do this for every conference moving forward? So I would say, yes, it was definitely worth it, though I say that where I will say again, Tiffany Murray and Terry Klein did so much of the work. Like I'm reporting a lot of what they did. So we should ask them that same question. But from my perspective, it was definitely worth it. The, the benefits of getting to go to PSB and you know having that time seeing colleagues that I haven't seen in two years. And I have to say there were moments of, can, can we hug? Do we? what do we like? I really want to hug you right now. Like I do too. Okay. Hold your breath, hug. And like, we would hold our breath and hug. Cause there were, you know, I had a student there who is now a postdoc at Stanford who I haven't seen. Like she left early in the pandemic to visit her boyfriend and then COVID hit and she never came back and she graduated online and never came back. And so I was almost in tears when I saw her, just, it was so good to see her. And same thing. I mean, you know, this is a tight knit community in, in bioinformatics. And there are folks I just hadn't seen in years where I had previously seen them three and four times a year. So it was almost like family coming home and seeing each other. And so for all of that, I would say it was worth it. I guess I would say, is it worth it for every conference? I think it was feasible because it was 200 people. I don't know how you would scale this at the level of you know, thousands of people. I, I don't, I just don't know how you could keep the contact tracing, you know, feasible and the distribution of tests and the tracking. Now, fortunately, I think most of the U S or certainly at least on the East coast, which is where I'm tracking the rates are dropping. And so I think the risk is going down pretty rapidly because the Omicron surge is behind us, at least on the East coast. Um, I think you know, it, it's up to each conference to figure out, you know, do they have the funding to do some of these things 
And then is a big piece of their conference, the in-person networking piece. Cause I'd say that's the other thing. If the majority of the focus of the conference is really sitting through the talks and there's limited discussion, like even, you know, at PSB, we have a session, which is paper presentations and then a discussion session where people talk about the topics and talk about the papers and Often that's the most exciting part of the meeting, that and then the networking that you do at breakfast and at lunch and at dinner, that you can't do on Zoom. But if it's the conference focus is mostly the talks, those work fine on Zoom. Like they're not as much fun, but they work fine. So I think it it may depend on the focus of the conference. Yeah, well, there's certainly been a lot of discussion about whether conferences, in-person conferences will continue, will they if they do continue, will they have the same look and feel? And, um, you know, what you just went through might be a signal that there will be permanent changes to conferences, you know, like social distancing and, and contact tracing and things like that. I mean, COVID is likely not going away. It's going to be part, it's going to be here to stay. It's something we're always going to have to worry about. And it's so highly contagious that, you know, you put a thousand or a couple thousand people together at a, a big conference, you know, you're, you're, you're going to, put everybody at risk. Um, so I don't know. It's, 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 it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm really happy to see that PSB did this pretty successfully. And, um, but you're right. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe these smaller conferences are the way to go. Maybe we should abandon the big mega conference um, uh, format and move to smaller niche conferences where you, where you can be more careful and do things like contact tracing and provide test kits and, and uh, do you know take the the necessary safety precautions? I don't know. It's going to be. We'll have to keep our eye on this and come back to you know come back to you know report on how this is evolving on the podcast. Yeah, and we should see. I think there are a number of meetings that are scheduled to be in person. You know, I think the next one that I'm scheduled to go to is in, I think April. Um, curious to see if it happens, but I have probably three conferences this year that are scheduled to be in person. So, so yeah, we should report back in a few months and see, did they happen? I think a lot of them have a hybrid plan. So I'm curious to see how those work out as well, that there are some people in the room and some on zoom and, and what does that feel like? Well, I can tell you, I'm, you know, I think you and I both have always gone to a lot of conferences and, you know, it's a great opportunity to network and which is really important part of the job. And, but I, th- I, I think I've already decided moving forward uh, after, you know, going through the pandemic that first of all, I'm going to travel a lot less. Um, and second of all, I, I think I'm going to attend many fewer conferences, maybe only one or two or three a year instead of four or five or six a year. And, you know, just, and, and I think a lot more is going to be online. A lot more is going to be recorded. I think, um, and, and now we're all zoom pros and we can network, you know, to some degree, uh, virtually a lot easier now. So I don't know. I, we'll, we'll see, maybe I'll change my mind, but right now I'm thinking I'm going to do a lot less traveling. It is now time for some news items. Here are a few things that caught our eye. Thanks, Marilyn. Um, I uh, wanted to let everybody know that there's a great new book covering the history of medical informatics that was just published a few months ago. The book is titled International Medical Informatics and the Transformation of Healthcare. The editor-in-chief is Dr. Kazmir Kulikowski, and the book consists of a history 
uh, and 160 personal stories from informaticians who contributed to that history. Um, this seems like a must-have book for medical informatician, and the good news is that the book is open access and available from the International Medical Informatics Association, or IMEA, website. So be sure and check it out. Uh, read the stories. I read some of them, and they're really, really informative. Um, and we'll have a link in the show notes to uh, this book and other, all the other news uh, topics that we're going to mention. I also ran across an interesting article published in the journal New Media and Society with the title, Anyway, the Dashboard is Dead on Trying to Build Urban Informatics. So the catchy title worked because I, uh, I think I ran across this on Twitter and uh, the title got me to open the link and read the paper. And um, it was really interesting. The paper's written by Dr. Uh, Jathan Sadowski from Monash University in Australia. And it tracks the development of two different data dashboards that were developed in an Australian city uh, over the course of a couple years. And, um, you know, I think this is worth reading because, you know, we talk a lot about clinical dashboards as a way to, a way to provide information about what's happening with patients to clinicians. And the story, the author's story from this uh, urban planning and management domain documents the, the troubles and the failures of these two Australian uh, city projects. And I really like this because, you know, these kinds of failure stories don't often get told. We always hear about the successes, the, the really nice dashboards that, you know, have documented success and people use them and it's, you know, informed healthcare. But I think there are a lot of failures where dashboards were created and, and did not succeed. And it's really interesting to read this paper and see the kinds of failures that they had and um, maybe think about how they could have been prevented. Yeah, that's great. Um, another one is informaticians. We think a lot about eliminating racial and gender bias in clinical decision-making. There was an interesting paper published by Damon Santola and colleagues in Nature Communications in November on documenting bias in treatment decisions using white and black actors. They then go on to show that the bias can be reduced through a peer network approach where information is exchanged among peer clinicians. We need to see more studies like this. And again, the, the article is in the show notes. It's a great article. Um, while we're on the topic of bias, there was also a piece in Science News about data from the U.S. National Science Foundation showing that Black students take on more debt and are less likely to receive certain grants. For example, Black students in the natural sciences and engineering reported an average debt of $82,000, while white students reported $47,000. This is a huge disparity and needs to be corrected. Related to this, there was a piece published in STAT on the gender bias of startup packages for new faculty in the biomedical space. And especially as a woman in science, this is really worrisome. I mean, I'm glad that it is something that we're vocalizing now, both the race bias and the gender bias. And I hope that that's the first step towards actually making change. I agree, Marilyn. I'm so happy to see people dig into these data and report them. And uh, these these studies need and these these news reports need to be amplified as much as we possibly can. Um, I was shocked about the gender bias and startup 
packages. Uh, one hand, it's not surprising, but I guess I didn't appreciate the 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 degree to which this is an issue, and and it definitely needs to be corrected. Um, there was a nice uh, review by Nyman et al. published this month in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology on missing data in machine learning-based prediction studies. Uh, their review of 152 machine learning papers showed that missing data imputation methods are rarely reported and often lacking even when reported. And this is so important for reproducibility. I was really surprised to see this. And I, I, it, it's, 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 it's surprising that people aren't reporting their missing data imputation methods and the parameters they used and the details so that others can reproduce the work from the raw data. Uh, it's also nice to see that uh, machine learning studies are starting to be published in epidemiology journals. And related to this, um, I ran across a nice preprint uh, posted in January by Perez Lebel et al. on benchmarking imputation approaches for missing data in healthcare data. Uh, and there are some nice comparisons here, so you might want to check that out as well. As some of you know, um, I'm a big fan of digital biology and artificial life methods um, for studying biology and genetics and other phenomenon. And there's a really nice review that just came out by Dolson and Ofria. Charles Ofria is the PI. He's at Michigan State University. Um, it was published in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. And uh, the focus was digital evolution methods and software for ecology research. Um, it's a wonderful review, and uh, I think it could be uh, a really useful starting point for those of you interested in bringing digital biology methods into the biomedical research domain, and the paper is uh, open access. Also, um, I ran across a cartoon by Aaron Bacall I thought I would share with you, really resonated with me. It shows a boss and an employee in suits and ties uh, sitting at a desk chatting. Uh, the boss is saying to the employee, and I quote, this is a really innovative approach, but I'm afraid we can't consider it. It's never been done before. I love this cartoon because it really captures the catch-22 that is informatics grants reviewed by uh, the NIH. On one hand, you need to be innovative with new methods that nobody has ever tried before to get funded. On the other hand, reviewers are risk averse and don't like proposals without preliminary data. So this is a very fine line to walk for uh, those of us that write NIH grants, especially for young investigators who don't have a strong track record yet and uh, you know, don't necessarily have a lot of preliminary data and, and can't rest on a, a, you know, a long career and a long uh, record of success. Yeah, I agree that cartoon, it, it's, funny and and yet not funny because that is the <laughs> life that we live when we're trying to be innovative in informatics and that was great um other news i was excited to see that dr elizabeth bick recently won the john maddox prize for courage and integrity for her work on finding errors and misconduct in research papers well deserved we also reported before about um timnit Gebru, who was fired from Google for championing diversity in the company. The Washington Post reported in December that she is forming her own distributed AI research institute, DARE, to focus on the negative impact AI can have on disadvantaged groups. She has already received several million dollars of funding, and that is just so exciting after seeing what had happened to her at Google. 
I can't, I can't wait to see what she does with this new institute. I'm really happy that, that, you know, she's received this funding and is launching a new initiative. And I think she has an opportunity to have a big impact in the AI area and already has for sure. And also I was really happy to see uh, Dr. Bick win the John Maddox prize. And um, I see her all the time on Twitter and follow her posts and, and if you, if you don't know her and don't know her work, I definitely recommend looking it up. And she pretty much works full time now, um, finding errors and, and plagiarism and misconduct in scientific publications and calls attention to it. And her work is, is a, an enormous service uh, to the scientific community. So congratulations, Dr. Bick. Um, there was a very nice paper published in November by Whalen et al. in Nature Reviews Genetics on the pitfalls of applying machine learning in the genomic space. They focus on the assumptions that machine learning methods make and the biases inherent to genomics data that one must be aware of. So if you're doing machine learning in the genomic space or want to, I highly recommend this paper. There was an interesting uh, editorial in Nature from December reporting the results of a nature survey, showing that researchers in industry are more positive about their careers and better paid than those in academia. There is no question that academia is challenging. Can it improve? And it's so interesting that this editorial was there and it, it actually created a lot of conversation on Twitter. And in our faculty meeting, we talked about this a bit and it actually led me to post on Twitter. You know, I don't tweet that often, but I was so... Um, I don't know, moved to say something positive about academia because there was just kind of a pile on about, see, academia is terrible. And we were talking about it and we realized that there are certainly in the public space more positive comments about careers in industry. However, if you talk to people in industry or if you've ever been in industry, you know this to be true you also sign a confidentiality agreement that you are not allowed to say negative things about your company in public. And so it's this really interesting um, kind of lens that, you know, there, there probably are a lot of things in the industry that are better than academia, but there are also a lot of things in academia that are better than, than in industry. But in academia, we have this freedom to say whatever we want. And people tend to focus on the negative. So more often people complain and focus on the negative in their commentary. So it just, it was interesting. So I posted a, a thread about why I love my job, which led to a lot of people saying me too, but then also a lot of people jumping on why academia is terrible. So I had to like, you know, turn off my Twitter notifications because it blew up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought this piece was very interesting. And, and I think like you, Marilyn, uh, when I first read it, I was skeptical. I was like, oh, really? I, I, this, is, this was surprising to me because I also really enjoy academia. But, um, but I also know from following Twitter and talking with colleagues, there, there are a lot of people in academia that are very unhappy, very dissatisfied with the way academia does things. And, and now that I've been in academia for uh, nearly 25 years, um, um, getting old and experienced, um, I can reflect back and say that I definitely think academia get, is getting more complex, more red tape, more challenging, 
you know, a, a good example is the modular grant uh, mechanism at the NIH, which is capped at $250,000 a year in direct costs. Now, um, when I, I'm trying to remember the year that the modular mechanism went into place, but I think it was, um, it was a while ago, like early, mid 2000s, I want to say. I feel like it's been there since I started writing grants, which would have been 2004. Yeah, I think it was early 2000s around that time um, that the modular mechanism went into place. And here we are 20, 20 years later, and the, the cap hasn't changed. But 20 years of inflation in prices and cost, I mean, just in 20 years, the cost of postdocs has gone up dramatically. The cost of computer programmers and data scientists has gone up, probably doubled, more than doubled in 20 years. Yet the cap on, on the modular budget has stayed the same. So over time, as each year has gone on, we can do less and less research and get fewer and fewer things done with the, you know, with the modular budget. It's, it's, and if you want to have a subcontract, it's not enough money for two people to do a grant at two different institutions anymore. So anyway, that's an ex, just one example. I, I could come up with a bazillion others, but you know, I think academia has gotten more difficult, more challenging, more complex um, over time. Institutions have gotten more complex. So anyway, it, it's um, fun, interesting to think about. And if you are in industry and um, have been in academia, you know, feel free to write to us. We'd love to quote you on the podcast and, uh, or maybe even have you come on the podcast and share your experience. As some of you know, I work on automated machine learning methods, which is an exciting new field. It's been around for less than 10 years. And I was happy to learn that there, uh, there's a, a series of automated machine learning workshops that's been held over the years that have now graduated from workshops to a full international conference to be held for the first time this year in Baltimore on July 25th through 27th. And the webpage is automl.cc. And so if you're interested in automated machine learning, there is now a conference, a full-blown conference for you to go to. And I assume since it's international, it'll jump around to different parts of the world, uh, which, which could be fun. So um, I'm not going to be able to go this year uh, because of the new job, but um, I will definitely try to put this on my calendar uh, for next year and, and maybe even submit something. And while I'm on this topic, I'll just mention that, that we published, my lab published what I think is the very first review paper on automated machine learning for genetic and genomic analysis. And this came out in October in the journal Human Genetics. Um, fairness and bias have become important and hot topics in uh, biomedical informatics. This is especially true for AI and machine learning, which can exploit and exacerbate biases in data. And it's worth noting that there's um, an Association of Computing Machinery, ACM, which is the main computer science um, uh, society. Uh, there's an ACM conference on fairness, accountability, and transparency, abbreviated FACCT, or FACT, uh, that brings together diverse groups interested in this topic. And by diverse, I mean uh, diversity of different disciplines, not just computer science, but you know, sociology and other, other areas. Uh, the next conference is going to be held in June of this year in Seoul, South Korea, and it might be a good conference for biomedical informaticians working in this space. There was an interesting paper published in Cell in December by Briand et al. 
introducing the topic of infodemics. That is the epidemic of mis or faulty information available to the masses and its impact on public health crises. Definitely a big problem for the public health community, especially during an ongoing pandemic. There was a great perspectives piece published on December 30th in the New England Journal of Medicine on calling out aversive racism in academic medicine by Chen et al. It is a very thoughtful piece, which everyone should read. They end the paper with this quote. We hope academic leaders will lead the charge by acknowledging the need to openly address aversive racism within broader efforts to dismantle structural racism in medicine. Yeah, that's a great piece. Everybody should definitely uh, read that piece. Um, there's an interesting new review by Hond et al. published in January in Digital Medicine on guidelines and cr criteria for AI-based prediction models in healthcare. Uh, this is a, a quote from the paper that provides a description. This scoping review aimed to identify actionable guidance for those closely involved in AI-based prediction model development, evaluation, and implementation, including software engineers, data scientists, and healthcare professionals, and to identify potential gaps in this guidance. Definitely worth a look. We also um, had reported a few episodes ago uh, that IBM Watson was up for sale. STAT just reported on January 21st uh, that Watson was finally sold to a private equity firm. Um, you know, I, I think this is a sad day, um, given that Watson was the technology that ended the AI winter and had so much promise. And, you know, I think we've discussed this on the show before, uh, some, of the, some of the things that happened with Watson and what, why it failed. But um, anyway, it's it's sad and interesting that it was sold and probably would be broken up into pieces and sold to other companies. And um, it's going to be interesting to, uh, to see where this space goes. That is it for the news today. If you run across any items of interest, be sure and let us know. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending an email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is teaching students and trainees about failure. So the paper that we're going to tell you about today will be in the show notes, but it is uh, an article out of science titled, Why I Teach My Students About Scientific Failure. Uh, Jason came across this article, and I absolutely loved it. And so first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it um, in case you haven't seen it. And as I said, we have the, the article in the show notes. This is a, a teacher who teaches biology. And what he did for this class, he printed 14 Western blot images for the students to discuss. They were doing a three hour lab and these pictures of Western blots were supposed to be the culmination of a week long research project. It's an undergraduate biology course. And I'm gonna read a few quotes from this article um, rather than summarize, because I just love the way that, that it was said. The day my students determine whether their experimental results support their carefully crafted hypotheses, but the images 
So remember, he brought images or printouts of 14 Western blots. The images are all the same and all full of nothing but background bands. My students are about to have a hard lesson in scientific failure and how to be resilient in the face of it. It's a lesson I wish I'd learned before starting grad school. So after a solid hour of struggle and some leading questions on my part, one student finally spoke up. It doesn't make sense. The bands look the same size, but the proteins should be different sizes. Hallelujah, a student has stepped back from seeing what they expected to see and described what the data actually showed. Within minutes, they were overflowing with questions and ideas about what could have gone wrong. We spent the next two hours covering the chalkboard with plans to troubleshoot the experimental procedures. My students were thinking like scientists, a development no amount of advanced planning could have created. I loved this. This reminded me of being in biology undergrad when, yeah, the experiments mostly worked. And I actually had to laugh because my 16-year-old, he's a sophomore in high school and he's taking AP biology. And he just had something like this happen, but the teacher actually taught them about failure. So they broke into small groups. They were isolating DNA and then running them in a gel electrophoresis. And he and his lab partner I don't know. They were mixing, you know, the different liquids. I don't, I don't even know which one, you know, which thing he did, which step was wrong, but the teacher came over and said, what did you just do? And he and his partner explained how they had like poured this tube into this tube. And the teacher said, oh, well, that's probably not going to work, but put it on the gel and let's see what happens. And so they put, you know, what should have been DNA into the gel and they did the steps wrong. And so they got no bands. And so my son came home and said, you know, the teacher let us run it anyway, but it totally failed. And, and I was like, so what did you learn? And he said, well, that experiments fail. We learned not to mix this step before this step. We learned that the order actually matters. And, and it was helpful. And he was so excited that he got to see what a failed experiment looked like. And I was like, wow. So not all teachers do it the way that I had it, which is that they had everything perfectly laid out and, and you did it and the experiments worked every time. Um, and I thought that, I mean, it is good to learn. You know, as scientists, what we're doing is called research. And in my head, that means, I, I emphasize the re, it means do it again. Like most of the time our experiments fail. Most of the time our hypotheses are wrong. We just redo it. We come up with a new way. We redo it. It's research, do it again and again. And I, I think I'm so glad that this teacher wrote this article and I hope that others who do teach at the, the undergraduate or even the high school level think more about this. Failure is a part of science, it's part of life too, but in science, to me, failure is the most exciting part. When you have a failure, that actually often teaches us more than when we got it right. Because when we fail, we start to, you know, you take a step back and you really think about what could be truth here? What could have happened? What should I do differently? And so, so it's interesting how, you know, for many failure just seems like it's the, you know, a big kind of problem in science, but I think it's the perfect teachable moment to figure out, you know, how to, how to overcome that scientific question that you're addressing. And and a lot of times in my lab, whenever we have experiments gone wrong, I certainly will talk about it with the group. Like, okay, so what, what could have gone wrong? What should we have done differently? How could we have, you know, changed the algorithm or, or what could be wrong in the data? 
But then I also often kind of nudge them. All right, let's take a step back. Do you think other people in the field are making the same mistake? Should we publish this failure? And often they're mortified at the thought of writing a paper and submitting it for the public to see the failure that we had. But we've done it a few times and they've been very well cited. And and in my mind, if we've made a failure in our assumptions, a failure in our code, some sort of failure with putting different data sets together, you know, if we could do it, it's likely someone else could do it too. And so I view it as a teachable moment. Teach other students or other scientists in the field how not to make the same mistake that you made. And so I, I embrace failure and, and I think we use it to protect ourselves against making them in the future. And it, and it teaches us kind of how to be better scientists. So I, I absolutely love this article. I think, you know, failure is a huge, it's just a huge part of science and a huge part of life. And it's not that we strive for failure, but it's just, it's going to happen. And I think taking that failure in stride and figuring out how to use it to your advantage is is the lesson to be learned. I don't know, Jason, you found the article. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I ran across this article and really, really loved it. And um, it's short, it's well-written, it's a nice story. So definitely check it out. Um, you know, I, I, just as a side note, I, I you know, it's a little devious, right? By the teacher to give them, <laughs> you know, Western blots with, with only background noise and not, no signal. Uh, it's a bit devious, and and you know, if, uh, any student that was really on the ball and knew what they were doing would be kind of kind of ticked off, I think, <laughs> to be put in that situation. But, but nonetheless, I agree. It's a it's a great teaching moment, and uh, and I'm sure a lesson the students will will never ever forget, and that's really key. And I agree with you. Failure is just such an important part of the scientific process, and. It's easy, especially for young people getting started out in science to get frustrated or to get upset when they fail, when their experiment doesn't work, when their code code doesn't work or doesn't do, you know, isn't better than, you know, the competing algorithm or whatever. And um, it's easy to get frustrated, but, but it, it is, it is a learning experience. We do, I think I've always thought that we learn more from failure than we do from success, because when something doesn't work, you have to you really have to stop and think, okay, did this not work because I mixed the tubes wrong? Like you're, you know, it, because th- there was a bug in the code or did this not work because there was a fundamental flaw in our logic and in our design in the methodology um, and, and there's really just no value to it or or is did it not work and we understand, can we understand why it didn't work? Which would then lead you to a new solution that would work, right? And, um, and early in your career, when you don't have a lot of experience, those kinds of failures can be immensely frustrating. And, um, but what happens over time, if you really dig deep into failures, you start to gain an intuition for why things fail and how to make things better and how to get things to work. And I think that's an important, that experience is really important for biomedical informaticians. I I had a graduate student recently that, that came to me and said, you know, I, I've been doing this. It's just not working. I'm about ready to give up. And I said, well, why don't you try this one thing? And he came back the next day and said, oh my God, that worked. How did you know that would work? And, you know, I didn't know, but I had an intuition for how to, how to understand why the code was failing that he didn't think of not, you know, not because he's not smart, but he just didn't have the experience of dealing with lots of failures and digging into them. And so that's a really 
key skill to develop over time. And, and another reason why failure is so important, because the more you fail, the more you learn for it, from it, and the better you get at diagnosing failure and designing things that do indeed work better. Not always, but, but sometimes. So yeah, I, I love this. I love this article. I think there's just so much to learn. And, and if I can go off on a tangent for a second, I would say that, and I've probably mentioned this before on the podcast, but one of the really, you know, as we think about artificial intelligence and getting AI to solve problems like humans, um, early in my career, I, I met Marvin Minsky, who is one of the founding figures of AI and told him what I was working on. And, and he said, well, you know, the kind of algorithm you're working on doesn't learn from failure. And that's one of the key things for AI. And I, you know, I've always thought about that. And it's true. Most of our AI machine learning models that we use don't learn from failure. They only get rewarded for the successes. Um, and so this is something that I've always thought about, but don't have any answer to is how do you, how do you get an AI algorithm to learn from failure? So anyway, it's a, it's an important topic. Right. Well, wrapping up today, it was great to be back at the virtual roundtable with you, Jason. I'm glad that we live in a world where we can do things like this on the East Coast and the West Coast. Now the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast comes to you coast to coast, and it was a real pleasure. Uh, we both have lots of exciting things going on, and I look forward to talking more about that in the next episode. Yeah, I agree, Marilyn. It was really, really great to see you and congratulations on your, your new gig again. And um, I guess I'm going to end on a little bit of a negative note today after being very upbeat this podcast and enjoying my new job. And But I, you know, I'm just thinking about the IBM Watson story and about how sad that is that IBM did not succeed and that IBM was, was sold, you know, sold off to a, you know, private, private equity investment firm. And um, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a, I, I don't know. I just think it's a sad day from, for the field, you know, when, when Watson came on the scene and ended the AI winter, this was a, this was a, one of those few really important, impactful milestones in the history of biomedical informatics, because it was the first time that we could really see AI in action and really see the potential of, of AI and believe that it could solve real problems. And there's no question that Watson has solved some real problems. Um, and that was very exciting and very important for the biomedical informatics field. And it, and it really, I think, uh, you know, was, was the nucleus of um, the catalyst for all the AI research that we've, we've done since Watson was released. And, and there has been a tremendous amount of really good AI work in our field, um, some of it impactful. Um, but it, I, I don't know, I, find, I just think it's kind of a sad day and it calls into question, you know, why did IBM fail? And, and who, who will succeed? You know, who's gonna step up and who's gonna provide those solutions, those AI-based solutions that we really need in healthcare that are gonna really impact patient care in a meaningful way and help people? I don't think we're there yet. And, and Watson was a glimmer of hope. Um, there are some other glimmers of hope, um, but we have a lot of work to do. Healthcare is a, just a, a extremely difficult business with messy data and complex questions and, you know, difficulties in, you know, putting things into the clinic and on and on and on. Um, many of these issues we've talked about on the podcast. So anyway, I'll, I'm just, I'm going to end on a little bit of a downer. I I'm sad about Watson 
And, and the failure of Watson really is making me call into question, where are we going with all of this? And will we get to the point where AI really does have a huge impact on healthcare? Well, echoing back to our training segment, you know, what can we learn from the failure of Watson? I think, as we just talked about, sometimes we learn best from our failures. So hopefully our generation can be part of that, you know, figuring out how to do it better or different than what Watson tried. But if not us, then the next generation can hopefully learn from the failures of our generation and the failures of Watson and the next one will be even better. Well said, Marilyn. That is it for today. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.